King Lemuel is writing uh, to his, um, this is the, what his mother taught him. His mom taught him this. Um, her children rise up and bless her, her husband also, and he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And what a great day just to be able to honor um, our moms in our midst and our moms who are not in our midst as well. Ushers, I'd like to ask you to come forward and to take the offering. And uh, I want to mention one announcement. Um, we have the honor to Celebrate Recovery tomorrow night to uh, have the National Assimilation Director for Celebrate Recovery. And one of the things that he's going to do is talk about this new upcoming movie uh, called uh, Home Run. Home Run is coming out in uh, September, uh, maybe late September. Uh, it'll be out before the World Series. And Home Run is a, a, a national movie that, uh, through a whole interesting series of events, came to feature Celebrate Recovery prominently in the movie. And so he, uh, Rodney, is going to be giving his testimony tomorrow night and talking a little bit about how we might be able to use that movie as an outreach tool within the community of Bartlesville. So it's, it's kind of a neat opportunity that we have to really reach into our, to our city in, in a very effective way. Um, well, I would like for you to, uh, to get out your outline. And uh, as you know, we are in a topical series uh, called Healing Prayer. And uh, this uh, is a topical series, so we're going to be kind of going back and forth using different scriptures. And uh, if uh, you haven't listened to the podcasts and you haven't been here so far, I would encourage you to listen to those podcasts because I'm trying to develop this sort of week after week so that you understand how we're developing this ministry and this concept of healing prayer at Grace. Why are we doing this? Well, the reason why is because the elders about two, two years ago recognized a lot of people were coming to the elders and the staff for prayer about physical needs. And so we, we took that as kind of a marker of what God wanted to, to teach us about. And then we would go down to Cuba, and uh, it was amazing what we would see down there. We would go door to door, do evangelism, and every person that we would talk to would request healing prayer. We're talking Christian, non-Christian, people of different faiths. When they recognized that we were Christians, they wanted prayer for specific physical ailments. And so the elders began thinking, you know, what is God telling us about how we should think about healing prayer? So for the past two years, uh, we plunged into a study uh, on this. And last week, I, or two weeks ago, I began by talking about having a supernatural worldview, and how there's a lot of people out there who say, yeah, God theoretically could intervene in my life, but he probably won't do it. I'm not really expecting him to do it. And what we argued, what I argued two weeks ago, is that you know, we need to really live in the presence of the supernatural. The God of the universe, the moment you accepted Christ, placed his Holy Spirit inside you. You were indwelt by his Spirit. And he commands you to regularly be empowered by the Spirit. And it's important for us to live in the present with a supernatural worldview, believing that God, who is powerful, 
can do great things on our behalf. Now, our view at Grace is that walking by faith in this area means at least three things. I talked about these last week. We pray proactively for God's healing grace and his healing intervention. At the same time, we make the, the, the use of the best use of medical science that we can when that's available to us. But in the process, what we realize is that God controls when, where, how, and why he chooses to heal anybody. And so we trust, we, we pray diligently, but we entrust the results up to him. And then last week I talked about the fact that the body of Christ is like an incubator for spiritual health. And I brought in a lot of medical studies last week. And I will tell you, when I first heard about these medical studies, I I was a little skeptical. Because for the past uh, 25 years, people have been studying religion and its connection to wellness. And in the popular literature, what do you hear? Oh, it's not that connected, and Christians are as bad as everybody else in terms of the eating categories. That's, that's what you hear in the pop, popular literature. That's not what you hear in the medical literature, because for the past 25 years, physicians have been studying the relationship between religion and health, and there is not just a slight correlation, there is a radical and dramatic correlation And uh, I talked a lot about that last week. I'll talk a little bit more about it this week. But in the most recent study on this, the studies showed that those who attend the worship service of their local church weekly, they have the same positive health markers as those who quit smoking. And again, I, I, I thought, seriously? Why isn't anybody talking about that? But that shows up in study after study after study. It's not causational like, hey, come to church and live longer. That's not it. It's associational. It's health is associated with those who are immersed in a healthy local church. Now, this week, I want to talk about markers of, of, of wellness from the Old Testament, And so we're going to look at a few of these from the Old Testament. What I want to argue, first of all, is that the Old Testament teaching is very similar to the New Testament teaching, and that is when you live out God's Word in community, it creates an environment that is conducive to health. And I begin with the dietary laws of the Old Testament, which is a strange place to begin because these dietary laws are very obscure and very difficult to understand. But many people have read Leviticus, and they think, why did God give Israel these picky laws about what to eat and what not to eat? Was it, was it health? Was it food safety? What was the purpose? And I got a real insight into this last November in Cuba. We're in Cuba. We had just finished a meal, and somebody brings in a white sack filled with stuff. And he said, look at this. And I peered into it. It looked like trash. This stuff in the sack was from a former idol worshiper of the Santerian faith. This idol worshiper had come to Christ, and with the help of her friends, she, she sacked up all of her idols and her idol paraphernalia, 
and put it into a sack, and then they showed me the sack and some other people the sack from Grace. And when I looked into it, I, I, I thought, what, what's all the food doing in there? And they explained to me that if you are an idol worshiper of the Santerian faith, part of what you do is you take food and you continually offer it to the idols as a way of placating the idols and getting power from the idols. I will tell you, it was disgusting because what was in there was, was stinking, rot, rotting food that presumably the idols were eating and, and using to gain power to give back to the worshiper. And it made me dig into the, the Old Testament from a, from a different perspective because the people of Israel are surrounded by polytheistic nations who are doing the exact same sort of thing, trying to gain occult power through the idolatry of, their, of their, their, their worship system. When God gives the dietary laws in the Old Testament, He's giving these laws as a protection against the use and the misuse of food to protect His people from, from idolatry. But digging into the details, it makes no sense at first, right? Because you think, wait, why can I eat fish with scales but not rabbits or camels? What's the correlation? Why, why can I eat grasshoppers but not pigs, crabs, or eels? And um, it's, it's very difficult to figure this out until you realize that the order of the food laws given in Leviticus corresponds to the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So the animals that are clean in, Gen in Leviticus 10 and 11 operate in harmony with nature the animals that are unclean in Leviticus operate out of harmony with God's created order. I could go into lots of detail there. I won't, I won't give you the details because uh, there's, there's a lot of details. But the overarching reason is that, is that the clean animals operate in harmony with, with God's created order, which told Israel, I want you to live in harmony with my created order. I want you to live in harmony with with my law, and I'm going to remind you of that even in the things that you choose to eat. So the bottom line was this, we're called to be like God, and we apply godliness to our eating. We apply godliness with respect to the food that we choose to ingest in our body. So the dietary laws were not first and foremost about health, they were about protection from idolatry. However, we live in an age of science. So there are nutritionists now who are in the field of nutrition science who say, hey, let's take a look at those Old Testament dietary laws. What health implications did they have? And so many nutrition scientists have written on this, and they've said, you know what? If you followed the Old Testament dietary laws, not only would it keep you from idolatry, but it would also promote physical health in a whole multiplicity of different ways. I want you to think about Exodus 15, 26 in light of the two purposes, no idolatry but health. 15, 26, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none 
of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. There is a supernatural quality to this, but there's also the natural quality of eating in a healthy way. You realize what the Egyptians would do is they would make bread, and in the bread there would be sand because they would be grinding bread in a certain way, and all Egyptians had dental problems. And the Old Testament dietary laws protected Israel from the practical things that other, other nations struggled with. And God is saying, I want you to be healthy in your, in your eating. Let's think about some specific commands that would have um, promoted uh, physical health in the Bible. I want to give you, give you four, four specific principles. Principle number one, when we eat, when we eat, when they ate, they ate in community. And it was the communal nature of their eating that was part of what promoted physical health. For instance, Proverbs 23.20, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now, there's an obvious application to that, but the maybe not so obvious is, is this, and it was obvious to them, maybe not so much to us, but when you, when you eat, you eat in community. Friendship cultures have a way that they eat. Families have a way that they eat. And what this proverb is saying in part is check out the culture in which you consume food. If you're with those who are gluttonous eaters of meat, what are you going to tend to be? A gluttonous eater of meat. If you're somebody who is consuming food in a wise and balanced way, what are you going to be? Uh, A wise and balanced consumer of food. And so part of what happened in the Old Testament is that you would you would consume food in a culture. What happens in our culture? How many people zip through a drive-thru alone, consume food alone in their car, throw it in the back seat? And what have you done? Uh, do you want it supersized? Yeah, go ahead and supersize it. Ah, no. Well, we, we've consumed food alone. And what the Old Testament was suggesting is that there's always a culture in which you consume food. And that culture will lead you to a place of consuming food in a healthy in a healthy way. There's all sorts of other things I could say about that. But in terms of health, what the Bible seems to indicate is watch what you eat and with whom you eat it. Those who families who eat together tend to be healthier. Scientific studies have shown that over, over and over again. If you eat as a family alone, which happens many times these days, you tend to not eat quite as healthy. Now, that's health with regard to food. Let me switch gears and talk about another area of health according to the Old Testament. Uh, Old Te- in the Old Testament, health was very strongly related to sexual habits, very strongly related to sexual habits. We have principles for the right use of sexuality beginning in Genesis chapter 1. There are laws that were laid down in Leviticus 18. Uh, There are principles in the Song of Solomon. There are principles in the Proverbs. And of course, Exodus 2014 is crystal clear. 
you shall not commit adultery. Now, if you take all of the biblical data about sexual health, you come up with a very cohesive sexual ethic. And the ethic is this. Sex is an incredible gift from God. Sex is an incredible blessing from God. However, it is so powerful that it is designed to be used in a monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Uh-oh. I just said something that is hugely politically incorrect. Well, let me tell you, it was politically incorrect when it was given by Moses in 1440 B.C. It was politically incorrect in an even greater way when Jesus and Paul made their statements in the first century. It has been politically correct ever since. It's not like we got to the 21st century and, oh my gosh, you know, this is really politically incorrect. It's been that way for thousands of years. Why? Because sexuality is so closely tied into our identity. So because it's controversial, let me, let me put it to you a little bit of a different way. In 1960, there were two sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis and gonorrhea, and they could be cured by penicillin. Today, there are 25 varieties of sexually transmitted diseases, including AIDS, and at least four of those cannot be cured, and because you typically get them when you're young, you have them for life. So the lie that we see sort of, sort of around us is, I'm young, I'm sexual, I'm free, I can do anything I want to do. And then you get into the healthcare community and what you hear are the horror stories of how people have ruined their life through that sort of sexual freedom. You may remember what U.S. Surgeon General Everett Koop said about sexually transmitted diseases. He says, when you have sex with someone, you're having sex with everyone they have had sex with for the last 10 years and everyone they and their partners have had sex with for the last 10 years as well. Now, what, what does that have to do with the Old Testament biblical ethic about sex and, and, and sexuality? Everybody admits our world is adrift in terms of sexual ethics and that it costs not billions but trillions. And what the Bible says what especially the Old Testament says, is if you want to be healthy, steward your sexuality along biblical guidelines. And it leads to a place of health. Principle number three, health is strongly related to sanitary conditions. I won't go into a whole lot of detail here, but Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14 lists sanitary conditions that need to take place within the camp of Israel. These were things like how to set up latrines, and how to dispose of, of, of waste. Now, did they understand microbiology? No, obviously they did not. Did the God of the universe understand microbiology? Obviously, he did. He's the one who, who created it. Israel needed to be disciplined to be protected from disease. And if you look at the archaeological studies of the other surrounding nations, they had terrible diseases in part because of the lack of sanitary conditions. Does this apply today? Oh, you bet it applies today. There's all sorts of studies now about the national health system in in Britain because there are these superbugs that specifically replicate in hospitals. 
So the idea is, I don't want to go to a hospital in the UK because of these replicating superbugs that are, are not cured by antibiotics. Where do they come from? Well, there's all sorts of studies about this, but one of the things that the national health system is doing right now is they have posters all over the place telling healthcare professionals and patients, wash your hands. Simple idea. You'd think that would be obvious. That has to be out there because of this age that we live in. All I'm saying is the Old Testament was very clear about, about, about health, eating, sexuality, sanitary conditions. Let's switch to mental health. Mental health is strongly related, related to families. Psalm 128 celebrates strong families with this word picture. He says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. All right, that's poetry, right? But this poetry says one thing about the family. When you build a strong family, when you build a loving family, when you build an empowering family, the kids who are like, your, your wife being like an olive vine meant a cultivated vine that produces fruit. And the olive shoots, well, olive trees last for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they generate thousands upon thousands of bushels of, of olives, which generated wealth for the people. So those were word pictures suggesting the mental health, the physical flourishing suggested mental health within, inside the home. And so the Old Testament is, is saying, we want, you know, physical health can be achieved in this way. Mental health can be achieved in this way by a, by a flourishing family. All these practices were designed to take place in community. Now, why is it important that we know about these, these general patterns of health if we're talking about healing prayer? Here's the reason why. At some point in your life, if it hasn't already happened, you're going to have somebody in your family who's sick, and you're going to be kneeling by their bedside, and you're going to be pleading with God to heal them. You're going to be motivated by an emotion that wells up inside you with tears. God, please heal my son from this fever that's so desperate and is stealing his health. God, heal my wife from this cancer. You're going to be praying those prayers. Even people not of faith are driven to prayer in times like that. Listen, we know that God regularly uh, provides dramatic answers to prayer for healing, even miraculous answers. And He does this whether you live a healthy lifestyle or not. You know why? It's because His healing grace is grace, it's unmerited favor. But look, a wise response to God's healing grace is this. Even when I don't need a physical healing, I am going to strive for balanced health. My body is God's, and therefore I'm going to do those things with, that, that foster good physical health. I have talked to several people recently who've said, you know what, I prayed, and God healed me, and it was a great thing. However... They've also said, I did not maintain good habits of health after that, and that was inconsistent with my faith. If I'm going to trust God for supernatural healing, then what I, I ought to do is trust Him day by day for natural physical health 
that have been laid down in his word. Now, I want to move from the biblical now to the medical. And, and I want to tell, I want to say that there is a strong connection between a committed Christian faith and wellness. They did the same thing last week. We went from the New Testament to the medical, but I was very general last week. I want to be a little bit more specific this week. In 1927, Sigmund Freud wrote the book, Future of an Illusion. And Freud said this, quote, religion depresses the value of life and it distorts the picture of the real world in a delusional manner. Now, when Freud said that, it was pure theory. He did not do any medical work in order to try to, to get that to, to happen. Uh, so since the middle 1960s, and since the middle 1990s in particular, these claims by Freud have been extensively tested over and over again, and guess what? They've been proven false. They've been proven false. Today, there are thousands of scientific studies that demonstrated that a, a correlation between involvement in religion and physical and mental health, and most of these studies specifically examine the habits of the Christian faith and its contribution in health. Let me just remind you what I said last week. Since the 1970s, um, one of the markers that scientists have come up with to measure religion and health is weekly worship attendance. And again, you know, I first heard about that. I thought, seriously? I mean, you could be going to, a, to not even a very good church. And these, these guys recognize that. But that's what they, that's what they came up with. And, and, um, and these guys are, are, you know, warned against that, but they were studying uh, regular involvement in the Christian faith and, uh, and said, this is a marker of, of health. So what I began to realize is that this has been the case for the past 2,000 years. Gary Ferngren is a professor of um, history at Oregon State University, and he's a scholar in, in, in the field of healthcare and early Christianity. That's, that's his field. And he said this about the early Christian faith in healthcare, quote, from the very beginning, Christianity displayed a marked philanthropic imperative that manifested itself both in personal and corporate concern for those in physical need. In contrast to the classical world, like the Greeks and the Egyptians, who were very religious, he says they had no impulse for charity, at least not like the Christians did. Christianity regarded charity as motivated by agape love, reflecting the incarnational and redemptive love of Christ. So it wasn't just like, okay, go to the oracle of Delphi. It was, no, we have a real Savior, Jesus Christ, who healed people during his ministry, and we're going to go into the world, and we're going to be a healing presence through our prayer and through our rudimentary nursing care. They didn't call it nursing care but that's essentially what they practice. So let's think about some of the specific studies that have been done recently. Ronald Huberman is a medical researcher in the area of cancer. He is a very well-respected oncologist. He is the researcher and the co-developer of natural killer cells. Natural killer cells are basically a blood cell known as a lymphocyte, and it has two specific jobs. It seeks out cells that shouldn't be there, it prevents the metastasis of those cells, and it kills them. It destroys them. One doctor described their function as immunosurveillance. 
Like it's, they're going through the body, surveilling the body, kind of check out what you shouldn't be there. When they find something, bam, they kill it. That's what their role is in the body. Natural killer cells have been the subject of an enormous amount of research, and scientists have found that natural killer cell activity is greatly reduced by guess what? Stress, anxiety, depression. In other words, if you are depressed, if you're anxious, if you're under a lot of stress, it, it suppresses the effectiveness of that natural killer cell activity. So how do you make the natural killer cell activity more effective? Well, Huberman writes a, a textbook called Psychoneuroimmunology, medical textbook. And he says, natural killer cell, quote, natural killer cell activity can be predicted by the perception of high-quality emotional support from a spouse and the social support of a community. In other words, when you seek that out as a coping strategy, it tends to increase the natural killer cell activity in your body. And then he said this, and this is a slightly edited quote to take out some of the medical jargon. Because a major aspect of religious activity involves social support and coping skills, it is likely that religious activity will have a strong effect on resistance to cancer progression. I did a double take when I, when I read that. that. That was really surprising. So I read further. Harold Koenig, who co-authored the textbook, said this. He said that religion has a very strong role in diminishing um, anxiety associated with cancer. And he said that in, in many observational studies... Connected with religion, it connected religion with significantly less anxiety. So what he said was that in some of the cl- clinical trials that have been done, religious intervention was more effective for reducing anxiety than secular therapy alone or no treatment at all. Did, I hope you got that. What, what he's saying is, if you're anxious, it's going to de- de- depress natural killer cell activity. You don't want that. All right, how do I treat my anxiety? They said, secular therapy, one option. No therapy, another option. And a religious therapy as your third option. And and the result was the religious therapy had by far the most effective way of reducing anxiety. The conclusion of these guys about cancer was that the Christian religion is generally beneficial in the prevention and the management of cancer because it involves the kind of social support that allows natural killer cell activity to flourish. Well, let me give you another example. The influence of of religion on the healing of wounds. Now, you know, I thought, seriously? I mean, how is that going to help in the healing of wounds? You'd think that wound healing would be a purely scientific thing. Wounds occur and the body does what it's supposed to do, it's, it, it, it heals them up. Um, so the studies are showing something very surprising. 1996 sh- studies showed that social isolation increases emotional distress. That suppresses the immune system. It's bad for your physical health. What about the reverse? More social support coming from a church or small group. What would that do to wound healing? Koenig suggests that's where all the studies are headed. And in a, in a, a number of years ago, a, a team headed up by Kai Colt and Glasser did a series of experiments on the relationship of 
stress to the healing of flesh wounds that were not sutured, in other words, not sewn up. And the results were, were really interesting. He said, people who were highly stressed took nine days longer for their wounds to heal, or 24% longer than the control group. Why is that? Their blood chemistry was fundamentally, fundamentally different because of the stress. Then Koenig talked about, well, what, what about people who are involved in, in the Christian faith in, in, in some way? And what he said is that those involved in the Christian faith, their stress levels were, were reduced. That changed the chemistry of the blood. That caused the wound to close up faster. That led to greater long-term um, uh, health with regard to that wound. In other words, that wound not, not opening up. And Koenig then said, this even applies to a heart procedure, that those who have had and open-heart surgery tend to do better when they're involved in the kind of social support that their Christian faith provides to them. I'll tell you, one of the reasons why at Grace we're so passionate right now about Stephen Ministry is because Stephen Ministry falls under these studies, providing the social support that leads toward greater natural health. One more area. Uh, look at the effect of religion on cardiovascular functioning. Uh, I mentioned a little bit of this last week, but in his textbook called Handbook of Religion and Health, Koenig looks at all these studies about cardiovascular health, things like high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, high cholesterol, and so on. And Koenig claims that in study after study, religious involvement is inversely related to these risk factors. In other words, what happens if you're involved in a church what happens if you're involved in a small group is that all of these risk factors begin to go down. Now, I told you last week that when I first read about these things, I'm thinking, wait a second, I'm reading all this stuff in pop culture that says, oh, religion's not that good for you. Christians are not any different than the rest of the world. And I'm reading all these things from, you know, from pop authors who are sort of trendy and then I've got a, a pile of books that I, I, I purchased them on Kindle, so it's not a pile like this, it's sort of like that. <laughs> and these, these, these physicians who are doing the hardcore medical research are saying it's just the opposite. The social support that comes from living out your Christian faith in a small group, in a church, has a profound impact on your physical health. By the way, these guys are studying the impact of other religions as well, and what they say is there is still a marked difference between those who follow the Christian faith and those who follow other faiths as well. What they say is not all faiths are equal in terms of the health benefits. Obviously, some are because they offer a form of social support. Now, uh, let me give you an example of, of religion on anxiety. Um, is anxiety a good thing? Well, it can be if you see a bear in front of you. It can be a good thing if you see a tsunami coming to you because it's like that, I'm out of here sort of response. But most of us are not seeing bears every day, and we're not seeing tsunamis every day, but we feel anxious. That's not a good thing. And what anxiety has been associated with is physical pain. In other words, in the studies that are being done, the more anxiety you report, the more physical pain you report 
as, as well. And so these doctors are doing studies not just on physical symptoms, you know, cardiovascular issues and wound healing, things like that, but they're doing things on, on, on mental, mental health areas, areas as well. And one of the things that Harold Koenig has said, every study on anxiety suggests that the positive social support that comes from the Christian faith has a tendency to reduce anxiety significantly. And if you can't have it done naturally, the prayer support that comes is, is an amazing, undergirding way of decreasing chronic general anxiety sorts of disorder. I wish I had time to give you more of these. I don't. So let me just pause and, and let's think about what we've seen this week and last week. New Testament. I suggested there were five positive principles for wellness that come out of the New Testament. Old Testament, I'm suggesting there are four or five positive principles for wellness that come out of the Old Testament. If we're going to talk about supernatural healing prayer, I think it just makes good sense and good stewardship to talk about natural principles of health that flow from living out your Christian faith. Harold Koenig said they tested Christians, okay, who read their Bible and prayed and those who didn't read their Bible and prayed. And they said all the health benefits that you get from the Christian faith are good, but they're significantly increased if you pray regularly and you read the Bible. Ironically, he said that those people who pray regularly tend to be people who have greater social support. Why, I thought. Why is that? They didn't prove the reason. All they proved was the association. And the association is if I pray for 15 minutes a day, let's say, I will be the kind of person who has a group of people around me who support me. And that support is conducive to, um, to good mental and physical health. And in fact, one of the things they said was that the Christian support was better than the secular support. Um, so, very interesting. So now, um, I want to I think, you know, about the, so what? What, what, what? what do we do? What do we do with all this? My argument is that we've got to embrace science and faith at the same time. In other words, God calls us to pray about our physical health. Now, God didn't have to call us to do that. We're naturally inclined to do that, right? Somebody gets desperately ill in your family, what do you do? God, help. You're, you're naturally motivated to that. But from the scriptures, what I'm arguing from this week and last week is that you make the best use of prayer, healing prayer, and the best use of medicine at the same time. There's no dichotomy between the two at all. You do those at the same time. Now, before I, I give you the, the kind of the so what, let, let me obje- address one objection just like I did last week. This objection is, is, is voiced this way. Look, isn't Christianity really just like a psychological crutch for those people who are not strong enough to make it on their own? Well, I want to go back to the work of Koenig and his colleagues at Duke University Medical School. And in his book, Religion, Medicine, and Health, he cites two case studies to demonstrate that Christianity is not a crutch, but a real pathway toward actual health. He says, not too long ago, a study was performed among patients suffering chronic 
mental illness at a Los Angeles County mental health facility. More than 80% of those patients used religion to cope, and the majority of the 80% spent nearly half their time, their coping time, in prayer. Now, there's a lot more to that study, but the study concluded this way, quote, religious coping is a pervasive and effective method of coping for those with mental illness and thus warranting its integration into psychiatric and psychological practice. Now, th- these are guys at Duke University Medical School who, who, who did, this, did this study. What they're, what they're saying is, from, in terms of mental health, um, these studies validate the use of prayer in generating positive mental health. So let's go back to Sigmund Freud. Was Freud, Freud advanced, the th- anybody can advance a theory, right? Freud advanced the theory. Anybody can do that, they're free to do that. Now you gotta test the theory. That theory has been tested over and over and over and over again, and with all due respect to Dr. Freud, he was dead wrong. He was dead wrong. Um, Koenig cites another study based on 4,500 randomly sampled people in the South Central U.S., and the, qu- the question of the study was this, what is the strongest predictor of life satisfaction? That's a good question. The overwhelming answer was, was surprising. The strongest predictor of life satisfaction was this. Informal, interpersonal contact with friends. So what predicts whether you're going to be satisfied in life? In- informal, interpersonal contact with friends. But here's the kicker. Provided those friends were church-based. When I read that, I thought, seriously, I mean, these... So, the study went on to show that if you get your social support inside the church, your health was generally better than if you got your social support from outside the church. So, these are very interesting studies that would indicate Christianity is, is not a psychological crutch, but a real pathway to psychological health. So, here are three, three key quick principles in closing. First application, develop the habits of health that we've talked about in the past couple of weeks. Those habits of health are biblical, and they've been studied in the scientific literature and shown to be effective. If you're going to depend upon God for supernatural healing, and all of us will at some point in the future, all of us will, it just makes a lot of sense that in the present we go, you know what, okay, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to practice out these positive principles of physical health. Second, get into Christian community. Sounds like a really simple thing, doesn't it? And yet the studies over and over and over again have said the social support that comes from the Christian faith is conducive to good physical and mental health. Third application is pray. That sounds like a good thing to do, doesn't it? Just pray. Why don't we do it more? Seriously, why, why, don't, why don't we do it more? Well, there's spiritual warfare, obviously. That may be, may be one thing. But you know, um, the thing about prayer is this. I have to be desperate sometimes to get off home base and pray. And so one of the things I would say is allow your desperation for God to draw you into a place 
of prayer. I know those are very, very simple applications, but I'm, I'm wanting to give you these applications because these now have been scientifically tested. And I'll conclude with what Koenig said. Harold Koenig, the Duke Center for Medicine and Spirituality, he says this, quote, medical science is beginning to discover that it, <clears throat> that it may be precisely these old religious doctrines and practices that have maintained the mental health and well-being of people through the ages. Koenig can say that and still be well-regarded at Duke because he's published 400 peer-reviewed journal articles and 40 books, and he heads a department at Duke University Medical School. Here's a doctor who's saying, these old doctrines and practices, we knew they worked back then because we had the witness of the Spirit. Now we know because we have the testimony of peer-reviewed studies that bear, that bear this out. Now, we've talked about, <clears throat> over the past three weeks, we've talked about some of the natural progressions of health. Next week, we go from the natural to the supernatural. Next week, we talked about, we'll talk about the supernatural component of healing prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I just want to, first of all, thank you for all the moms in our midst And I want to thank you, Lord, that the moms in our midst have blessed each one of us. And Father, I want to thank you that uh, moms and dads are, are crucial to mental and physical health. Sometimes we have painful relationships with our family. Lord, I, I understand that. But in the big picture, Father, our, our moms gave us amazing gifts, amazing gifts. God, we want to thank you for our moms, for the blessing that they've been to us, for the blessings that they've been to our family. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of our mothers in our midst and our moms who can't be here. We pray that you'd pour out your blessing upon, upon our moms. We pray, Lord, that we could, we could show them, Lord, not just today, but in an ongoing way, our esteem, our care, our value, our love. And Father, I want to pray, Lord, that you would help us as followers of Christ pursue habits of health that would also motivate us to pray prayers of supernatural healing when we're desperate, when we're needy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If God has answered a prayer this week, I want to invite you to come forward and uh, light a candle and just celebrate that answered prayer.